How did five men spend nearly 30 years in prison combined without ever being charged with a crime? What are the stakes involved in Canadian Bill C-51 and other anti-terrorism measures being pursued in Canada? Is there a standard formula, historically, by which authoritarian forces sequentially shut down democracies? Is there evidence that Canada is on the path to fascism, given Bill C-51 and other recent developments? Who or what is attempting to implement the fascist shift? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we outline evidence of Canada's eroding democratic institutions. We hear from filmmaker Amar Walla, director of The Secret Trial 5. We hear a speech by Canadian Green Party leader Elizabeth May. And for the entire second half hour, we hear from former political consultant and high-profile feminist author Naomi Wolf about her research to the shutting down of democracies and her opinion of what is happening north of the 49th parallel. On this week's program, The End of Canada in 10 Steps, a conversation with Naomi Wolf. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of March 20th, 2015. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. A commander of Iraq's popular forces disclosed that wiretapping of ISIL's communications has confirmed the reports that the U.S. planes have been airdropping food and arms supplies for the Takfiri terrorists. Many similar reports by Iraqi officials and forces have surfaced in the last few months. In February, an Iraqi provincial official lashed out at the Western countries and their regional allies for supporting Takfiri terrorists in Iraq, revealing that the U.S. airplanes still continue to airdrop weapons and foodstuff for the ISIL terrorists. Meanwhile, head of Iraqi Parliament's National Security and Defense Committee, Hakem al-Zameli, also disclosed that the anti-ISIL coalition's planes have dropped weapons and foodstuff for the ISIL in Salahuddin, Al-Anbar, and Dayala provinces. In January, Al-Zameli underlined that the coalition is the main cause of ISIL's survival in Iraq. That comes from the article, Delivery of U.S. Weapons and Ammunition to ISIS, Iraqi commander wiretaps ISIS communications with U.S. military by FARS news agency, posted March 19th. It is known truth that CIA constantly backs up and supports all known so-called jihadist groups from the Taliban of Afghanistan and Pakistan to even Zema Islamia and Al-Qaeda in the Middle East and the Boko Haram of Nigeria. That is why U.S. will never seriously fight these monsters it created. 
U.S. is the invisible director of all international terrorism groups so that these monsters can commit crimes mercilessly and with impunity against humanity. These monsters are made alive and sustained by American dollars and ably, yet subtly, directed by the master of the puppetry, U.S. invisible hegemonic hand. NATO is in unholy partnership with the CIA operators, who are currently training, arming, funding, and equipping thousands of ISIS combatants from Europe to overthrow secular and socialist Syria as part of the CIA ploy called Arab Spring, which is nothing but a covert ideological operation to conquer the Middle East and Central Asia, its oil reserves, its pipeline corridors, as part of an imperial agenda. That comes from the article, The ISIS Described by the U.S. Media as a Sunni Muslim Militia is Made in America. It has nothing to do with Sunni Islam, by Professor Henry Francis B. Espiritu, posted March 19th. On March 17th, Ukraine's parliament, the Rada, voted to declare Donbass to be temporarily occupied territory until the residents there are conquered. The day before that, the figurehead president of Ukraine had presented to the Rada a draft resolution proposing to solve the problem of the resistant Donbass with a resolution he published on his website on March 14th saying that the region has special status and temporary self-government. But this proposal wasn't the one that Rada passed. The president nonetheless declared that his terminology was somehow law from the moment it had been published on his website. U.S. President Obama wants the war resumed as quickly as possible, but Angela Merkel and other European leaders have urged that it not be resumed at all. Apparently, Prime Minister Yatsenyuk has determined that he now has enough weapons and loans to be able to resume the war very soon, until final victory. That comes from the article, Ukraine Declares a Resumption of War Against Donbass, by Eric Zeus, posted March 19th. The U.S. State Department and CIA toppled the elected government in Ukraine and ordered the new junta regime to launch a desperate war of annihilation against its own people in the East because, well, because they felt they had no other option. Had Putin's ambitious plan to create a free trade zone between Lisbon to Vladivostok gone forward, then where would that leave the United States? Out in the cold, that's where. The U.S. would become an isolated island of dwindling significance whose massive account deficits and ballooning national debt would pave the way for years of brutal restructuring, declining standards of living, runaway inflation, and burgeoning social unrest. Does anyone really believe that Washington would let that to happen when it was a brand, has a brand spanking trillion dollar war machine at its disposal? That's from the article, Washington's War on Russia by Mike Whitney, posted March 19th, originally appearing at Counterpunch. Even though Riyadh and Tel Aviv have no official diplomatic ties, in addition to there being dramatic cultural and religious differences between them, the two nations increasingly have a convergence of interests in the region. Both countries are close allies of the West and share analogous positions on Syria and Iran. Saudi Arabia and Israel may be given the green light to attack Iran on behalf of NATO powers if NATO feels it could not sell a direct war in Iran to their populations back home. 
Regime change in Syria is a prerequisite before an overt attack on Iran can take place, however, as Damascus is an important Iranian ally in the Middle East. If a military assault on Iran occurs, it would be difficult for the arena of conflict to be contained to the Middle East as it has the potential to rapidly escalate into a wider conflict involving Russia and China. That comes from the article, U.S. NATO allies Saudi Arabia and Israel edge closer to war with Iran by Stephen McMillan, posted March 19th, originally appearing at New Eastern Outlook. Look at how much importance tyrannical Putin attaches to people's sentiments and desires, even if those desires are imposed from the outside. Now we know for certain that the Kremlin was conducting opinion polls constantly and everywhere in the Crimea, on the Donbass, in Russia concerning both Crimea and Donbass, and in the various regions of Ukraine. One can criticize VVP for this, but he does not want to do anything that does not have the support of the inhabitants of a given territory. He acts in a similar manner in Russia. He makes a decision only when the people are ready, or even more than ready for it. I think that's due to an understanding that the government's actions are truly historical and make lives better only when they are based on the desires of the majority of the population. That comes from the article, Why Putin Did Not Send the Russian Army into Donbass by Ruski Malchik, posted March 19th, translated by Jay Hawk, originally appearing at Fort Roos. It's been one year since European sanctions were first enacted against Russia on 17th of March 2014, and it's worthy to briefly highlight their consequences on Moscow. Likewise, the counter-sanctions that Russia imposed on the EU last summer must also be critically looked at in order to assess the economic and political impact of the sanctions war on both parties. As a simple summary, the sanctions war united Russia but divided Europe, giving the former a unique and pressing opportunity to diversify its partnerships while depriving the latter of what, has what was inarguably its most important one. The EU didn't anticipate the extent to which the U.S. would exploit it amidst the new Cold War, but as has been widely analyzed, the whole point of renewed U.S.-Russian tensions has been for Washington to divide the EU from Russia and preempt the type of collusion between the two that could torpedo America's Eurasian hegemony, as per Brzezinski's forecast in the Grand Chessboard. While the U.S. has been partially successful in dividing Europe from Russia, it's totally failed in keeping Moscow and Beijing apart, and the two are now making rounds across the world in strengthening multipolarity and pushing back against the U.S. designs. That comes from the article, Who's Won the Sanctions War So Far? Washington, Brussels, or Moscow? By Andrew Koribko, posted March 19th, originally appearing at Oriental Review. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. There's a film that will, has been 
appearing in select theaters uh, since March 12th and going on until March 25th across Canada in 12 different locations. It's called The Secret Trial 5, and it concerns the fate of five people who were placed in detention without charge, and together they've been in detention for 30 years, cumulatively. They are arrested using an instrument known as security certificates. So we're going to be hearing uh, from the director of that film. His name is Amar Walla, and uh, he's going to help uh, put this uh, facet of our uh, whole security apparatus uh, through the uh, in the context of the current concerns around C-51. So Amar Walla, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Could I ask you, first of all, how you got connected with this particular theme? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was a film student at York University, and I was uh, sort of looking for what my next short film was going to be. Uh, I was in my third year at the time, and I heard a crazy story about a young Egyptian boy, young Egyptian refugee who was sort of traveling around Ontario, talking about his father, who he claimed had been in jail in, in Ontario for seven years at that point without being charged with a crime. Now, I thought that that was probably not true and completely crazy. I'd never heard anything like it. So I actually started to look into it, and unfortunately, it was true. And his father's name was Mahmoud Jabala. The boy's name was Ahmed Jabala. Uh, and uh, his father was held on a security certificate. At that point, had been in jail for about seven years without being charged with a crime. And so I became very interested in this family and in this father-son story. And so I made a short film about that family my, my final year at York. And uh, it kind of went from there. The security certificates uh, came into the news quite prominently in 2007. They were found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Canada, but they were amended and brought back in in 2008. And so the families were living under, at that point, very harsh house arrest conditions. So men were moved out of prison, but they were sort of moved into a prison with their own families. So they had uh, problems like cameras in their home. Um, they were being followed by government agents on outings and things like that. So it was very problematic for the families. And so that piqued my interest again. And I thought, this, this needs to be a film. People need to know that this is happening in Canada. This is something we need to be talking about as a country. I don't think I'd ever heard of security certificates until after the, the September 11th attacks. But the secret, the security certificates, uh, they have a, a history that goes well before 9-11, right? That's right. They were actually created in the late 70s. Um, and depending on who you speak to, certain academics feel that they always had a bit of a racial connotation to them. So when immigration in Canada opened up um, and people from you know, the eastern countries were starting to immigrate to Canada, they feel that this legislation was brought in for that reason, because there was this you know, fear of the other that was kind of rooted in this xenophobic ideology of the time. And so they're actually Cold War remnant, believe it or not. They're also used as a, as a means to deport spies really easily. Canada has had sort of quid pro quo exchanges uh, with other countries um, for spies. So if, you know, if we catch your spies, we'll deport them. If you catch our spies, we'll deport them. We won't engage in sort of legal action. That's been a longstanding tradition in Canada. And so they morphed into more of an anti-terrorism tool around the time of 9-11, though two of our subjects were actually arrested on them before 9-11 in the year 2000. But they've been around since the 70s, and they've kind of been, been changing and morphing over the years um, to to the government's uh, suit, uh, whatever the government feels it suits them best. So in a, in, at a certain point, they were being used to deport Latin American leftists quite exclusively. And in the last 15 years, we've seen that it's been Arab Muslim men who have been held on them almost exclusively. 
Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the five are um, Mahmoud Jabala, uh, Mohammed Harkat, Mohammed Zeki Majoub, Hassan Almaray, and Adil Sharkawi. Uh, and uh, how, <laughs> from your perspective, how much uh, media attention have they gotten, uh, you know, given the uh, significance of the issues uh, involved relating to not only security, but specifically civil liberties? Well, they received quite a bit of attention when they were first arrested. Um, they were arrested in very dramatic fashion. These were huge news stories. We actually have a montage in the film of the times, you know, in the early 2000s when they were all picked up. And it was, as you can imagine, very, very dramatic. And since then, you know, security certificates have been in and out of the news whenever there is a major court decision. So they were found unconstitutional in 2007. They were found constitutional in 2014. So whenever those big moments come up, um, it does get covered by the news. But the entire process itself and what I felt was the absurdity of the process, the problems within the process, the fact that the men are held without charge, the fact that they're not allowed to see the evidence against themselves, the fact that their lawyers aren't allowed to see the evidence against them. Uh, those were the things that really weren't being talked about. Those were the things. There wasn't a sort of fulsome approach to this issue from the news media. And, and that's part of the main reason why we made the film, hmm. is that the attention was, was sort of dramatic and, and sensational. And of course, terrorism is a very scary thing. But there were huge problems within the law itself that weren't really being addressed. So when you, um, this is all, you know, officially under the framework of, of national security. So, uh, but we have this new, uh, this legislation, Bill C-51, uh, coming into effect. Um, are, are you suggesting there's a kind of a, a slippery slope er- element here where uh, we're, we're not just talking about, you know, non-citizens, but people who are, you know, maybe saying the wrong things, or how, how do you uh, see the relevance in the, in, I mean, it, it certainly has a lot of relevance uh, in its own as a, a human rights issue, but uh, I'm just trying to make that connection with C-51. Yeah, well, I, mean, I think what our film documents is, is sort of what happens and what the potential human costs are when we, in a state of fear at a time of stress, put an emphasis on national security and sort of compromise our principles, right? The right to a fair trial, the right to be charged with a crime, the right to know what you're accused of is something that we all take for granted. This is something that we expect as Canadians, but it was not implemented in these cases. These men were stripped of that. And the argument from the government has always been that, you know, they're not citizens. And that's a very, in my opinion, very flawed argument, very archaic argument. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms says nothing about citizens or non-citizens. Everyone in Canada who's accused of a crime uh, deserves a chance to defend themselves in a court of law. So we abandon our principles at a time of stress in the cases of these five men. And I see what I fear is a very similar trajectory with Bill C-51. It's certainly a different bill. Uh, it acts within the criminal code, which is actually good. It's nice that they're using criminal justice to actually, you know, anytime terrorism is dealt with through the criminal courts, that's a positive. Um, because, of course, within criminal courts, there's a certain amount of protection afforded to the accused person. The problem with Bill C-51 is that it's very similar in the sense that it is a reactionary piece of legislation that has a tremendous amount of criticism coming from the academic and legal community. And I think it's very important that before we pass legislation like this, that we pay attention to what the overwhelming chorus of experts are saying. We, we didn't do that with Bill C-3, which was the bill that brought the security certificate back into the works after they were found unconstitutional. We ignored the academics and the legal community at that point. So I would hope 
that at least on a basic level, we're having this conversation as a country now. And I see, I'm actually quite um, encouraged by the dialogue that's happening in the country. You saw the polls early on this year when the when the bill was first tabled. Uh, there was an overwhelming majority of people that supported this bill, you know, without actually knowing what was in it. And now that we've created this dialogue, now that the conversations are happening, not just in coffee shops and street corners, but also in the news media, that support has dwindled down, according to a recent report, to under 20%. So it's clear that we're having a very, very important dialogue as a country. I'm not sure whether it'll have a huge huge political effect, because of course the Conservatives have a majority right now. But I'm very encouraged by the conversations Canadians are having about this issue. Mm. So uh, as far as the uh, the men themselves, um, I mean, can you update us on uh, where they're at uh, currently? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Otto Shirkawi from Montreal was the first of the five to win his case. He received his Canadian citizenship last year, but unfortunately he's still dealing with all kinds of difficulties from his time as a, a quote-unquote terror suspect. Uh, his name was just dragged through the mud again because of uh, an association he had to one of the uh, six uh, students who allegedly has gone to Syria. Um, you know, Mr. Shirkawi is a teacher. He teaches hundreds of kids. So he's still facing that stigma. He's still facing sort of the ramifications of being labeled a terrorist, um, although he has won his case. And he is him, along with Hassan Omri, are currently suing the Canadian government for compensation. They're the two that have won their cases. And the other three are now living under what are very sort of mild forms of house arrest. In fact, they're not wearing tracking bracelets anymore. There's no cameras. There's no one following them. So the courts have conceded that, you know, through the passing of time, that they're not really a threat to Canadians anymore, but they still don't have that final piece of closure. They still don't have, they still have not won their cases. They're still technically living under a security certificate. Although if you were to see them, they would just appear to be a normal family at this point. So that's quite upsetting to me as a Canadian that this kind of thing has become normalized to the point where people are just kind of building their lives around these conditions. Mm. So unfortunately it is still going for three of them. And, um, Canadian government has chosen not to use security certificates since 2008. They still are on the books, of course, but they, even in cases where the terror suspect is not a Canadian citizen, like the Via Rail case, for example, uh, the government is choosing to use the criminal law, which is good, which is what we feel the right uh, process is. So hopefully we won't see security certificates used again in Canada in this fashion. Okay. Now, the uh, the film, is uh, it's it's been screening, uh, as I said, across Canada over the past uh, week and a week and a half I think it was and it's continuing until the 25th uh, right. what, what kind of uh, reception has it received so far it's been wonderful I mean we premiered at hot docs last year so we've been sort of out in the public light for uh, close to a year now and uh, the response has been overwhelmingly positive I mean our reviews have been exceptionally strong which is really good that's helped us sort of get out there to a slightly larger and more mainstream audience but I think Canadians are just unbelievably shocked at the stories of these five men. They're shocked at how bad it really got, how crazy it really got, and quite frankly, how absurd the law is. I mean, it's really important to note that security certificates are an immigration legislation that stop uh, the moment the men admit to or agree to be deported from the country of Canada. Now, if you think about that, if you've actually got a terrorist, which is what these men are all accused of, they're all accused of being terrorists, why would you deport a terrorist and let him go free in some other country? It's an absurd, archaic um, remnant of the Cold War that we're using today. And so I think that shock is, is really alarming for Canadians who, quite frankly, don't agree with holding someone this long without charging them with a crime. Okay. Um, 
And uh, I mean, you you, you mentioned uh, where the uh, each of these individuals are at now, uh, but I, I was wondering what your uh, like the families. Uh, h- how are they all coping with this whole situation? Are they? they, they I guess they're recovering. They're. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's certainly tough, as you can imagine. There yeah. are certainly going to be long-standing ramifications from living under these house arrest conditions for so long. But I'm actually blown away by how strong these families are. The Jabala family, for example, you know, Mr. Jabala is a grandfather now. He, he has Canadian-born grandchildren. Yes, he he's had Canadian-born children and now grandchildren. And he's still living under a security certificate. So this family has grown dramatically while living under these conditions. So... Um, it's kind of normalized for them, which is very sad, but I'm actually shocked at how they've managed to stay together and this has not broken them. Mm-hmm. Hassan Omri, for example, he's a, another subject who won his case. He's been through everything alone. He came to Canada alone. He has no family here. He spent the longest amount of time in prison because they couldn't find a surety to release him to. Um, he spent five and a half years in solitary confinement. And yet, somehow, he's managed to maintain his sense of humor, his sense of dignity, his humanity. He's, you know, he's an incredible, um, incredible human being. So I'm deeply inspired by, by these subjects, and I'm, I'm, you know, very happy to have gotten to know them through this process. Okay. Well, um, Amar Walla, I want to thank you very much for uh, joining me on the Global Research News Hour. Is there anything else you'd like to mention before we close? No, thank you very much for having me. And uh, for your for your folks who are listening who can't actually make our screenings, uh, please check out the website. You can actually watch the film directly on the website, secrettrial5.com. And please join in the dialogue we're trying to create around Bill C-51 online. Use the hashtag ST5Film, the hashtag Bill C-51, and join us on Twitter and Facebook and get involved in this conversation. Okay. Thank you very much, Amar. Yeah, thank you very much. And we've been speaking with Amar Walla. He is a filmmaker and director of the film The Secret Trial 5, which is screening at a number of locations uh, across Canada between March 12th and March 25th. In Guelph, it screens Saturday, March 21st at 2 p.m. at the Bookshelf at 41 Quebec Street. In Winnipeg, it screens Sunday, March 22nd at 3.30 and again at 7.30 in the Bandwidth Theatre at 585 Ellis Avenue. In Surrey, B.C., it screens Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Kwantlen Polytechnic University at 12666 72nd Avenue. And Wednesday, March 25th, there is a 6.30 screening at the Van City Theatre at 1181 Seymour Street. Visit www.secrettrial5.com for more details. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour on radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partner radio stations nationwide. We now listen to some audio recorded by Victoria Fenner for Rabble.ca. This is from the Cross Canada protests against the anti-terrorism bill C-51. This is the Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, speaking in Toronto.
You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Naomi Wolf is co-founder of DailyClout.com, a democracy-building community platform that empowers real people to build and exert real political clout, turning them into do-yourself lobbyists, journalists, and leaders. She is a former political consultant and a well-known feminist author following the publication of her 1991 classic, The Beauty Myth, which launched her reputation as a spokesperson for third-wave feminism. A few years after the 9-11 attacks, however, she started to become more reflective on the way civil liberties in the U.S. were being breached, and in 2007 published the provocative book, The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. In the book and subsequent talks, she outlines how there is a formula by which free societies close down and democracy shift into fascism, and that this uh, approach is composed of ten steps. She has commented on the signs of a fascist shift in the United States, and in light of the developments in Canada over the last ten years, and particularly the recent anti-terrorism legislation being introduced in the House of Commons, we wanted to see if there's evidence of this fascist shift taking place north of the 49th parallel. Miss Wolf has graciously agreed to join us by phone from New York. Uh, hello, Naomi Wolf. Hi, Michael. <laughs> so, um, could I ask you maybe briefly what, what, what got you on this trajectory of uh, you know, sort of, in a sense, moving from uh, you know, feminist uh, analysis to this uh, concern about uh, civil liberties as, as they are taking place in real time? Sure. Um, well, it, it may seem at, at first glance as if they're different fields, but in fact, to me, they're very much the same mission, the same continuum. I mean, feminism is basically properly understood. It's, it's just a logical extension of democracy. And um, the fight, I mean, feminism is often misdefined as a lifestyle issue or a you know gender war, but really, to me, it's best defined in these sort of classic Enlightenment terms of people just um, joining the universal fight for human rights, equality and dignity um, and representation and freedom. Um, and so when you look at it in that light, uh, it's natural that when I began to notice a systematic attack on civil liberties in the United States, um, and as the daughter of Holocaust survivors, I especially noticed um, in about 2006, 2007, and wrote about it, as you mentioned, in 2008 in the of America, um, echoes of techniques that were historically established by totalitarian or, or fascist dictatorships on the left and on the right in the 30s and 40s and 50s of the last century, um, it would be a natural thing for me to want to raise the alarm about. And I, I should just say, you know, you know, getting right into it, that Unfortunately, and I'm so sorry to have to say this, I hope to the widest possible audience in Canada, unfortunately the exact same techniques that we saw that suppressed our civil liberties and shipped away at our freedoms or slashed away at our freedoms in the United States are being um, enacted sort of step-by-step, 
uh, technique by technique in Canada. Okay. And, and just before we get into that, I, I, I just wanted to uh, maybe get a sense that that uh, like you've had a lot of time to reflect on this, but that this formula, that this consistent pattern that you see in in, in all of the uh, the different uh, r- regimes that you've uh, surveyed, um, do, is it your impression that these people are they're all reading from some classic guide, or is it simply a question of you know, a shift, uh, you know, any entity wanting control, maybe it's because of the nature of human society or human psychology, by maybe, you know, accident or, or otherwise, it will tend to have these characteristics. Or, or are they actually reading each other? Like, you know, maybe Stephen Harper's reading uh, the Mussolini's uh, thing, or, you know, George Bush is reading Fascism for Dummies, <laughs> or whatever. Right. I mean, so you're asking a very, very important question. I'm going to slightly restate what I heard you asking because I think it's really important for people to grasp this. You're basically saying, asking right, rightly, is it orchestrated and coordinated and deliberate, or is just is it just a movement of history, part of the pendulum, you know, swinging? Um, and I, you know, hoped obviously that it was the latter um, because then it, we would just be going through kind of a dark period and people would wake up, uh, you know, if, if, if it, it surely couldn't be that democracy after democracy around the world was uh, showing the same pattern. But, and when I first saw it at the end of America, I really thought it was just America. You know, I thought, like, who's behind it? And what what is it? And my best guess at that time was that it was the vast profits um, that could be made by extending war forever, um, wars of choice at a time of peace and prosperity. And especially at a time historically when um, all those profits are threatened because after the end of the Cold War, we don't have an obvious enemy. And uh, the Internet brings everyone so close together that humanity was really in danger of living in peace you know, forever, or realizing that they could work things out or that they weren't so different. Um, technology was enabling that. And so... Uh, you know, my analysis in 2008 was that warmongers in the U.S. needed to um, create or hype terror threats in order to keep the profits rolling in. Um, but unfortunately, I have to tell you, and I'm, I'm again, I hate being Cassandra. I hate being the bearer of this kind of news. It does appear to be orchestrated and um, coordinated. And here's the evidence. Uh, we're seeing the exact same thing happen in advanced democracy after advanced democracy around the world. Um, in other words, it started with 9-11 and, you know, the Patriot Act in the United States. Um, and then we had surveillance, and then we had Blackwater, now called Academy, now called Z, and then we had um, the uh, war on whistleblowers, and then we had... Uh, the militarization of the police and, you know, each of these 10 steps uh, toward fascism that I identify in the United States. But what we're seeing is that there are high-profile attacks um, taking place around the world. Uh, And as a former political consultant, I really want to stress there can be real crises that are then hyped or exploited or used for... a directed political agenda. In other words, it doesn't have to be fake to be utilized or exploited, right? And so um, we're seeing this pattern in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, 
in now Tunisia, um, which wasn't an advanced democracy, but, you know, we're, we're seeing the same thing happen in uh, the United States, in Britain, in France, in the Netherlands, um, in Norway, in Denmark, that uh, there will be a crisis and then you'll have this exact same legislation rushed through, which is a version of the Patriot Act. Um, and again, as a former political consultant, I can tell you these bills are hard to create. They take a long time. They're you know scores of pages, if not hundreds of pages long. And so it seems disturbing to me that uh, advanced democracies around the world had these same bills and laws, and you're dealing with this right now in Canada, thank God you're trying to fight it, you know, ready in waiting. Like, the way it's narrated in each country is, oh my God, crisis, we have to have a reaction, and the reaction is this set of laws. But in fact, those laws don't arise overnight, they don't arise in reaction, you know, chronologically to a, a crisis or a terror attack, they, they are long planned, take long execution. And then we see the exact same thing happen after that, we see global surveillance, um, global, you know, after the Snowden revelations about the United States telecom surveillance, we see revelations, <clears throat> pardon me, of intelligence agencies in Britain, in Germany, in France, in the Netherlands, in Israel, you know, in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia, um, disclosing that they're surveilling citizens. You see the same harassment of activists ratcheting up the same brutal militarized police. You see the same uniforms um, this sort of horrific robotic, you know, body armor, black, face-covered, helmeted, militarized policing look in advanced democracies around the world that are supposed to be peaceful civil societies where, you know, citizens aren't supposed to be arrested violently for freedom of assembly. Um, you see, you know, the militarization of police forces in democracies around the world. Um, yeah, you're seeing the exact same patterns. And so my best analysis now is not that it's just one national entity. My best analysis, do you want me to give you my best analysis? Because it's a bummer. Okay. I mean, I, I guess at this point I have to tell you what my best analysis okay. is. Um, unfortunately, I think that global corporate interests, mostly the war industry, um, but especially now the vast profits that are being realized by surveillance technologies, vast, like billions. Um, but also the other four global industries that increase, increasingly run everything, which I think of as in the United States, big insurance, you don't have that issue, but big pharma, big agriculture, um, big oil, right? They've all realized that democracy is bad for business and that really corporations global corporations flourish best in a, a climate like China, which is all about consumerism, but no one has civil rights. And so there is a, I believe, systematic, you know, effort. Um, and now that there are fewer and fewer walls between parliaments and congresses and corporate interests, there's a systematic effort around the world to make the planet good for business by suppressing or crushing democracy around the world. So for these uh, global power players, China is the promised land? Yeah, they, you know, it, for it's everyone. better than China. I, you know, have you ever heard the expression of Singapore model? I think this so, yeah. Thing. It's a, so I was, I was in Singapore recently, 
Singapore is even better than China <laughs> um, because they don't have any ideology. Like China still nominally has communism. And what I think these corporate interests have realized is that a country like Singapore, which has, you know, it has media, it has fashion, it has youth culture, it has consumerism. It just doesn't have any civil rights whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Right. That's the ideal. Um, and that is really, really scary. Now, turning our attention back to the Canadian, uh, specifically to the Canadian example, uh, as I mentioned, you, you, uh, you've boiled it down to 10 basic steps. I think you've already mentioned a, a couple of them, uh, invoking an external and internal threat. Uh, there's, I don't think anyone can question that the Harper government has been doing that in Canada, as well as uh, surveillance of ordinary citizens. Um, there are a couple more we could mention. Uh, establish secret prisons develop a paramilitary force, infiltrate citizen groups, uh, arbitrarily detain and release citizens. Uh, Did you see any of those being uh, implemented in Canada at present? I I do, Um, and probably there's a lot more that I don't see because um, mainstream media has been very good at not shining light on some of the most egregious and newsworthy um, stories, but... Yeah, um, well, I, I, you know, obviously the, the anti-terror laws um, that are going to be so catastrophic for Canada, you know, and the protests about them are, are in the news right now. Um, but I think that you've got, okay, here's one. I was shocked to discover that the United States has a law that was passed that allows the U.S to police in Canada? I don't know if you're aware of this. Mm-hmm. It, DHS has a, an agreement with Canada. It involves border border policing. But it's not just about joint policing at the border. It's also about U.S. policing inside of Canada. I mean, I was, you know, this is one of those laws that you just think if Canadians knew this, they would be up in arms. It's so dangerous. And, you know, you guys are not as far along the road of, you know, the journey to fascism you know, fortunately for you, then we are down here. So you might not think, or many people listening might think, well, what's so bad about that? But what we see in the United States is with the Department of Homeland Security, which is responsible for this, uh, whatever, arrangement, um, taking over more and more uh, domestic civil society police functions, right? You're not supposed to have military policing in a, a free democracy. You're supposed to have civil policing because they're answerable to the police commissioner, which is answerable to the elected official. Posse comitatus. Exactly. Yeah. So what we saw in the United States is coordination of Department of Homeland Security over policing, militarization of police forces, and then a kind of global crackdown in November of 2011 um, violent crackdown against Occupy protesters in 12 cities across America, violent arrests, you know, injuries, damaging arrests, t- terrifying arrests, 10-year sentences, um, uh, you know, complete breaking of this movement. And so, you know, Canada should worry about the militarization of policing. I definitely see it, you know, like in G20 and I believe Vancouver, um, you are definitely seeing in Canada the kind of violent provocateurs infiltrating peaceful citizens groups 
and creating violence as an excuse to crack down on protesters and arrest protesters. I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought that up because at the G20, there were over 1,000 arrests. It was the largest mass arrest in Canadian history. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there there was a lot of criticism of how the, the brutality used by the police services, and there were thousands of of police, military, and security personnel involved in those protests. There were uh, military, there were military um, involved in in the protests mm. in Canada. That's very involved serious. in the policing. Yeah, in the policing. I, I I'm I'm horrified to hear that. That's extremely <laughs> serious, and yeah. I'm sure you know why. You know, the, the definition of a police state is that the military engages in civil policing. Um, it may seem nice if you don't have a tradition of posse comitatus like we do in the United States separating civil and military policing, uh, you know, when they're rescuing pets from a flood, but, you know, when they start <laughs> occupying cities or suspending the rule of law, it, you know, or declaring a state of emergency, it's, it's much less nice. I mean, once you let the cat out of the bag mm-hmm. with military policing civil society, you have a police state. Um, There's something else I'm thinking about in Canada, which is very serious. We're seeing the same narrative of lockdown um, in country after country. And here's what I mean by that. You had a sniper situation, right? Was it Ontario or near Ontario? It was in Ottawa. Uh, Ottawa. There was a a lone individual who was supposedly inspired by ISIS, uh, went into the Canadian House of Commons. uh, That's like the capital of Canada. And uh, uh, he had, well, before making it into the House of Commons, he had shot somebody at the War Memorial uh, soldier. So this... Yeah. yeah. So it's terrible, of course, Um, but here's what I want to just narrate with some distress. The same news story virtually unfolded in Sydney, Australia. You know, a very similar news story in Paris, France. Um, You had this guy in um, Ottawa... And there's this lone gunman narrative or this sort of ISIS-inspired narrative unfolding around the world. It may all be true. It may be that there are just a bunch of guys going crazy all at once and engaging in pretty much the same news story all at once. Um, That just may be authentically happening. However, what disturbs me as a journalist is that very few questions are asked about um, these stories by journalists as they're unfolding. So we found out, for instance, in Sydney, it was described by news sources at the time as an ISIS-inspired individual, and then it turned out the guy had absolutely nothing to do with ISIS. It was just kind of a crazy Muslim guy, um, but that narrative was already out there. And then that narrative, the ISIS narrative, is a very worrying one because all of the democracies are using this narrative of Canadians going to join ISIS, Americans going to join ISIS, French people going to join ISIS as an excuse to suspend travel uh, freedom, crack down on passports, engage in you know preventive arrests, criminalize thought. Right? They're not they're arresting people not for doing things but for thinking things, which is always the nose in the you know camel's nose in the tent kind of thing. Like today, ISIS, tomorrow, dissidents, activists, environmentalists. Um, and so the other thing, so I'm worried that journalists aren't asking questions about these weirdly identical, weirdly useful. I'm not saying they didn't happen. I'm just saying journalists aren't doing their jobs, right? And when questions are being asked, there are a lot of anomalies. For instance, my community, uh, Daily Clout, 
reported out carefully, and I got in a lot of trouble for saying, you know, by media outlets for asking normal journalistic questions about the ISIS hostage videos, right? In in October, November, there were these terrible, terrible videos of, you know, hostages getting ready to be beheaded. And all I said was, you know, these are single-sourced. Journalism teaches you to have two sources independently confirming each other before you publish something as a fact. And they were sourced from one entity with close ties to the U.S. government and the anti-terror establishment, which is a, a group called SITE, S-I-T-E. They get half a million dollars in 2004 from the U.S. government. And all I said as a journalist was good journalism would submit these videos to independent analysis and verification. And I was savagely attacked in multiple outlets for saying that. It's what it's what the New York Times did with the um, Watergate tapes. You know, any important piece of audio or video that you're going to go to war on, you know, or report as accurate, good journalism independently verifies it. Mm. So having been viciously attacked about this, it turns out that two future or later hostage stories fell apart when my community of um, citizen journalists reported them out and checked. One of them was actually based in, in Montreal. Um allegedly a Montreal woman uh, journalist uh, was allegedly held by ISIS. And when we reported it out, it turned out that the, the Montreal uh, site, news site, said she didn't work there and that the origin of the story was Doha with a base with a British security, uh, you know, private security firm. And the image that they were using was this Swedish sportscaster. So the whole thing completely fell apart. So there's fake news entering the news stream for a lot of interesting reasons. Mm. Um, the rise of private security companies that are hired to, you know, feed fake news into the news stream. Certainly intelligence agencies are routinely tasked with black propaganda, feeding fake news into the news stream overseas. Why should we be surprised in a global news environment? There are stories entering the news stream that don't check out or that fall apart, but journalists aren't doing their jobs. And let, um, me, let me just yeah. – because that's a good segue to the next question I, I had with regard to this is that – you probably wouldn't be aware of this, but the day before the Canadian House of Commons voted on this anti-terrorism legislation, it was on a Sunday and all day long you were seeing this uh, – uh, a news reporting, like every half hour, they were showing these images of some fellow with a, a white uh, hood. It was some, supposedly somebody from El Shabab uh, was encouraging people to attack uh, Canadian uh, places, including the West Edmonton Mall. And right. uh, that was running all day, just bef- like the timing just before the anti-terrorism legislation. Does that echo anything that you've uh, encountered uh, through your research? Yeah, I'm... I'm I'm really glad you brought that up and you brought me back to the point, which is um, fake news is entering the news stream. And the goal of the fake news is to keep advanced democracies in a state of fear, constant, constant fear, but especially fear right before a useful bill can be passed. And the goal, as I mentioned before, is to turn Canada into Singapore, to turn the United States into Singapore. Um, to turn Britain into Singapore, to turn France into Singapore, so that, you know, your pipeline can be laid with no opposition, your black tar sands can be exploited with no opposition, your environment can be laid waste with no opposition, and business can just take over Canada, <laughs> basically, with no, no opposition. Um, and so, absolutely, I don't know that this was a fake clip. I do know that there are a number of 
similar clips being played around the clock in the United States, in Britain, in Australia, New Zealand, um, right before a bill needs to go through. And the journalists don't ask very basic questions. There was a video recently um, that got a lot of play of 20 Christians being beheaded by ISIS. And they may well have been beheaded by ISIS, and I don't mean to trivialize the atrocities committed by ISIS. But uh, Fox News subjected this clip to an independent analysis, and it turned out that it was staged and um, color-corrected to turn the you know, waves into blood. And, um, you know, that, that a person who worked in special effects said these are really ridiculous special effects. So that clip played over and over and over again right before the president of the United States got authorization to use military force in Iraq, which meant, you know, more billions uh, of, of dollars, unaccountable tax dollars flowing into the coffers of Raytheon, Halliburton, private industry involved in the war machine. So, you know, yeah, you should ask those questions because let me tell you, as an American, I love Canada. I love, love, love Canada. When I go north of the border, I feel like I'm in a sane version of what America could have been if we hadn't lost our minds. And um, one of the things I love about Canada is it's peaceful and rational. And if now you too, which seems obvious, are being bombarded with this fear propaganda, this terror hype, this inflation of the threat, these constant replays of threat, 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 you're targeted, you're targeted, without journalists asking any good questions about where these clips are coming from or who sourced them or how the news got them or how they know they're accurate, um, then unfortunately you're, you're heading into the very awful psychological reality we inhabit down here of being in a constant state of fear and anxiety, constantly manipulated and, and having lost our rights. Okay, I know you're very tight on time right now. I'll, I'll, I just have like maybe uh, – I'm going to try to package two questions into one if I may, and then you can sure. address both of them or either of them. I, as First of all, I was curious to know uh, because it seems to me that all of the, uh, the examples you've studied are all patriarchal societies, so I was wondering if there was maybe a, a gendered aspect to this uh, shift into fascism. Uh, you know, with the, the, you know, of course, you mentioned the thugs, but I was wondering if there were any, anything else along those lines. But also, I, I, I had the question about what what fascist Canada would look like. I mean, we've seen mm. depictions of the police state in movies and popular culture. Uh, would we be surprised by what a, a fully fascist Canada should this? Uh, uh, those words make me so sad. I yeah. love Canada so much. <laughs> um, so let me just transition by actually saying what I had, had wanted to say about a specific example of police state Canada. So when this sniper was loose or allegedly loose, because all you have are the police, you know, I'm guessing that no journalist actually independently got any direct confirmation of the story at all, because journalists have stopped doing that. Um, it's all transcription from the police or the security services or the parliament or the president or the prime minister. Um, but one of the disturbing things was that this town was in lockdown, Right, and you're seeing this a lot. You saw it in California. You're seeing it in France. Lockdown. Well, I grew up um, in Israel during a time, and in, in, in you know, often in Britain as well, during periods where there was was a lot of real terrorism. And there was never lockdown. Like there would be, if there was, God forbid, a terrorist situation. When I was growing up, the tactic was to get everyone out of there, not to quote shelter in place or to lock down a town or a neighborhood or tell people not to go outside. Um, and what I'm really worried about is that around the world you're seeing these stories of, oh, sniper loose, lockdown, lockdown. Um, 
And I, the reason I worry about that is I, I feel that we're being conditioned and we're having drills in U.S. schools, elementary schools, of the whole school being trained to lock down children every month. I mean, crazy money is going into this in the United States. Um, and the reason I worry about it is it's conditioning citizens to blindly obey authority and to, you know, and then all you have to do if you really want to kind of take over civil society is create a crisis or declare a crisis or an emergency. And then you have all these people basically going where they're told or doing what they're told um, without questioning. And so I guess when you're asking what does Canada as a police state look like, it, it, it looks like that neighborhood in lockdown where, where people are told you, you have to blindly obey because there's fear and uh, we know it's best for you. Um, it would be fine if we could trust the government would never use fear against us. But unfortunately, Harper is using fear against you Canadians, just like Bush and Obama and really the people pulling their strings, who are the six industries that increasingly run everything, um, are, are using fear to strip us of our freedom of thought, freedom of resistance, freedom of assembly, freedom of dissent. Well, Naomi Wolf, you've been very uh, gracious with your time. I'm uh, very pleased to have finally gotten the chance to interview you. Thank you very much for agreeing to this uh, interview. Thank you so much. And on a happier note, I trust the Canadians whom I, whom I respect and adore to rise up in time and fight back and reclaim your rights. Okay. We've been speaking with Naomi Wolf. Naomi Wolf is co-founder of DailyClout.com former political consultant, a well-known feminist author, and the author of the book, The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. Audio of the Elizabeth May speech was provided by Victoria Fenner of rabble.ca. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.